Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I speak with Michael Mendel, the chief economic strategist at the Progressive Policy Institute. Michael and his co-author Brett Swanson of Entropy Economics have published a recent report titled The Coming Productivity Boom, which is exactly what it sounds like. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you'll know that a common topic of discussion has been the stagnant productivity growth of the last decade and longer, just how long the slow trend is likely to last and what might speed things up. This really matters. The definition of faster productivity growth is that for each hour of work, more is produced. But it's tied, for instance, to faster wage growth. And more fundamentally, productivity growth also represents how quickly overall living standards improve throughout time. Well, Mendel and Swanson argue that to this point, industries like construction, transportation, manufacturing, in other words, the physical industries, haven't invested enough in information technology, not like the purely digital industries, but they will. And when they do, their business models and the products they make will be radically transformed. And this will spur higher productivity growth for the whole economy. So here's my chat with Michael. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Ah, glad to be here. First off, quick summary of the report. This paper was done over the last year with Brett Swanson. It was a joint project, and we wanted to see what the optimistic case for growth would look like given the new technologies. Uh, Here's where I want to start. Uh, I've been looking into the issue of productivity stagnation for the last couple of years, and the more research I read about it, the more it becomes obvious that economists don't actually have a great sense for what drives total factor productivity in particular. Uh, And for our listeners who aren't familiar with this concept, this is often thought to be a kind of proxy for a technological innovation. But what it really means is the economy's ability to take inputs. So for example, uh, labor, uh, the use of materials, equipment, or generally capital, and convert them into a unit of output, right? So it seems like economists just don't know what drives it, or at least they don't agree on it. Uh, And I wanted to start by asking uh, if you have a view on what drives it. I think what we've uh, seen in in recent years is that there's been this split between people who think that the economy, the innovation is moving very fast, and that the robots are about to eat all of our jobs, and uh, other uh, people who believe that, in fact, innovation and growth and total factor productivity in the economy is very slow and will continue to stagnate forever. And so forgetting for a second about the explanation, there isn't even agreement about what's happening in the economy. My view, actually the view of myself and Brett Swanson, is that the right way to think about the economy is that there's two things going on simultaneously. 
There's a digital sector of the economy, which is industries where the output can be easily converted to bits and bytes. And there's a physical sector of the economy where it's uh, manufacturing and transportation and construction, things that are solid and physical. And what we see in the data is that the digital economy has been growing in productivity very quickly, that the output has been rising, that prices have been falling, and that even jobs have been increasing. In the physical sector, it's been very slow productivity growth, very slow job growth, and very slow wage growth. And so the question you asked is, what's driving these two phenomena? In the digital sector, we are having very rapid transformation of the way business is done. And this transformation is exactly what we mean by total factor productivity growth. It is not only pervasive, but it spreads very quickly so that companies imitate each other and you have a good business model, a new use of information technology, and other companies imitate this, not just in the tech field, but in the finance field, professional services as well. So we've seen a a great deal of transformation there. In the physical sector, we've actually seen very slow use of information technology, and we actually haven't seen very much innovation in areas like materials and energy and transportation. Some of the fields that had great leaps forward in the early part of the 20th century. So I think what we've got is we've got two things going on. We've got rapid TFP growth in the digital sector happening just for the reasons that people think, and then a combination of factors in the physical sector that has made productivity growth very slow. Yeah, and we're going to get into uh, the details of the report in a minute. Uh, I want to stay on the broader theme of productivity growth for a second, though, because I think a lot of uh, your views on productivity certainly inform uh, the way that the paper was researched and written. It seems like in your work, one of the main things that drives the kind of diffusion of technology into a given sector is the right kind of investment. But economists have also studied other elements, like, for instance, the importance of institutions, the possibility simply that luck and circumstance sometimes play a role, that it takes time, for instance, between an initial innovation and then much later when that innovation is commercializable or when it becomes widespread. And then finally, of course, they they study just bog standard demand side policy because, of course, companies are going to be reluctant to invest if they don't think that the future is bright. If they're uh, not confident that there will be customers to buy their products, they're not going to invest in making those products in the first place. Uh, I guess I would just ask you more generally, uh, what weight do you assign to each of those other elements? Well, the way that I think about these elements actually depends on the industry. And let me give some examples. In biotech and health sciences, the U.S. has actually spent a trillion dollars in R&D, private and public, over the last decade in biosciences R&D. And we have not gotten the payoff from it that we would have expected in the form of either lower costs or breakthrough healthcare products that are revolutionary and cures and so forth. We still don't actually have a, a commercially available gene therapy. And so the question here is why has this happened? And so it's a combination, I think, that it turned out to be harder than we expected. And also, regulation has slowed down the rate at which 
companies are able to test new ideas and see what works. So I think the combination of these two factors have actually sort of slowed down the rate of innovation in biosciences. In a manufacturing, we've had flat total productivity growth in most manufacturing industries. And so in, in that case, I think if you sort of look at these industries, what you see is that there's been a lack of investment, surprisingly, in information technology and a lack of transformation on the factory floor. And I would account that to be that IT was not really capable yet of dealing with the physical world. It was great at dealing with digital things that could be easily turned into bits and bytes like journalism. But the physical world is a far, far more complicated, requires far more intensive data manipulation at, at, at real-time speeds. And only now are we getting up to the point where we can actually generate to have, have available to us the sort of IT resources that would enable us to transform manufacturing. But then there's industries like retail, which are in fact in the process of transforming right now, going from bricks and mortar to e-commerce, increasing productivity, lowering prices, and actually adding jobs at the same time. So when I sit down and I sort of look at the different factors I kind of take it industry by industry, and I sort of ask myself the question, what is happening here? Why haven't we seen growth? Is it because of the lack of investment? Is it because of the lack of R&D? Or is things were simply more complicated than we thought? Yeah, that, that's an interesting point about the possibility that the technology, uh, let's say 10 to 15 years ago, was obviously very promising and yet it wasn't quite ready to be applied to these other sectors. And it sort of raises the interesting question of, well, okay, so maybe some of the investment then that tried to apply it was premature, but without it and without the tinkering and the experimentation, the technology might not be as far along as it is now. And so in a sense, that was not wasted investment. It just turned out to be maybe a bad bet for the individual entities who made it. Uh, but societally... <laughs> it still benefits us. Well, I think what's interesting if you think about if you think about manufacturing and you think about something like a food processing. This is a food processing is something that has not changed that much, but you can imagine that it could change enormously as we develop uh, small sensors as we sort of have the ability to sort of track what's going on in a very, very granular level and control what's going on in a granular level, you can imagine that the price of food could drop dramatically, the nutritional content could increase, and we could see the production of new foods that were simply better in the same way that steel was better than the materials that preceded it. See, this is part of my, you know, when I think about what I would like in the next round of innovation and growth, I want to see the sort of jump increases in productivity as I saw in the oil and gas industry with the fracking, as I saw with the smartphone, as I'm seeing now in, uh, in retail sales. I want to see new things that are substantially different than what we had before or substantially lower in price. And I think in many industries, we're on the verge of this. Yeah. One of the underlying premises of the report is also that the stagnation pessimists are wrong about one thing in particular, which is the idea of information technology as essentially a spent force 
when it comes to further productivity gains. Uh, and I need to explain this to our listeners for a bit. Robert Gordon wrote this great book called The Rise and Fall of Economic Growth that essentially tracked the productivity growth of the United States going back to, I think, the mid-1800s or so, uh, and then to the present. But he concluded on a very pessimistic note that was essentially an extrapolation of recent trends. Yes, productivity growth was weak, but at the same time, one of the arguments there is that we had this 10-year spurt of helpful productivity growth from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s driven by IT, but that essentially those gains are over, that we would need to get productivity gains from somewhere else. Your argument says that that is wrong. Uh, so can you take us through it? Absolutely. Well, let's take something as simple as the oil and gas industry. The oil and gas industry has seen its reserves jumped enormously over the past 10 years because of the application of information technology to the location of reserves that uh, people were not aware of before and the ability to sort of drill horizontally to get to them. That's a very simple and example that, that people understand. We're seeing this in retail where we're seeing a shift to e-commerce, which has the potential of dramatically lowering the price to the consumers and also perhaps creating a new business models for custom manufacturing. We're going to see this in areas such as construction where as we see IT apply to construction, which has been very high-priced in recent years, we should be able to drive prices down and substantially improve standard of living for a lot of people who are now construction poor. Yeah. I want to now go to a quote from your paper and then ask you to comment on it. Here's the quote. The digital industries, which account for 25% of U.S. private sector employment and 30% of private sector GDP make 70% of all private sector investments in information technology. The physical industries, which are 75% of private sector employment and 70% of private sector GDP, make just 30% of the investments in information technology. That's the end of the quote. What's been the effect of that? Well, think about it. It means that the, the amount of information technology per worker in the digital industries is much, much higher that is in the physical industries. And actually, it turns out that the growth rate is much higher as well. And so what that means is that the average worker in a digital industry is more productive, more attached to the growth rate of the information technology sector, and enjoys higher wages. Whereas people working in areas such as food services and accommodations and even education and healthcare have far less information technology available to them per worker are less productive, and therefore, the wages are not as high. Mm -hmm. uh, here's what I was hoping to do. Let's talk about some of those individual physical industries. You've already done a little bit of this uh, in the intro, but because we obviously can't go through the minutia of all of them, I thought we'd just pick a few, and then you can maybe give us your quick take on how the application of information technology to each of these industries could potentially transform them in a way that they haven't been at least in some time. So it'll be a bit like a speed round. <laughs> Do you get to tell me the industry? Right, right, right. Exactly. So I'll give you the industry, okay, good. and then you tell us how it'll be transformed. Uh, uh, that's great. First, though, we, we have to make a point about how you define physical versus digital industries. It has to do with output, not with how they actually do business, right? That's right. The way I define digital industries here is if they can deliver their product digitally, that if they can be reduced to bits and bytes, 
Then I call it a digital industry. So that from that perspective, finance is a digital industry, entertainment, publishing, uh, professional services, because if you're an accountant or a lawyer, it's the same thing, uh, or a designer. Whereas something like healthcare, at this point, is still primarily a physical industry, is still primarily done in person and delivered physically. Same thing for education. Education could become a digital industry, but so far it has not. Perfect. Then let's go through each of these physical industries, uh, and we'll do a bit of a speed round. Um, So uh, first physical industry, transportation. Transportation. So transportation is a classic industry which has up to recently not used uh, very much IT, uh, has had pretty much flat wages, and has had rising prices in 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 a lot of parts of it. What we need to do is we need to sort of integrate IT with transportation, we've seen the beginnings of this with of ride sharing, and ride sharing has the potential of re- greatly increasing the use of capital, cutting costs, reducing the to consumers the share the large share of their budget that goes to transportation. That's on the personal side. On the trucking side, we have this concept of autonomous vehicles. Now, my picture is that it actually costs us an enormous amount now to distribute goods. Shifting to autonomous vehicles will reduce that cost, reduce prices to consumers, and actually transfer some of the labor from drivers, okay, who have a crappy job that is uh, very accident-prone. It has high death rates, high occupational injuries, and raise the demand for truck repair people, which they're not going to be called repair people because, in fact, these trucks will be complicated combinations of hardware and software, which will be prone to uh, hard-to-diagnose glitches, and you will actually take sophisticated repair people to keep them on the road because they will be running all the time and will have to be maintained all the time. So I think what we're sort of looking at at this point is a shift from drivers to technicians, which will have the effect of increasing wages, increasing the amount of human capital in the industry, and uh, perhaps lowering the cost to consumers. You also include in this section on transportation the need for a smart traffic system, especially if you're going to ha- live in a world <laughs> full of like autonomous uh, vehicles. First of all, can you, can you tell us what that is? Uh, and then give us a sense of the extent to which this would also need uh, a certain amount of public sector participation and regulatory changes. Well, I'm actually going to extend this a little bit. So you're thinking right now about the uh, smart traffic systems for wheeled vehicles. I think we need to sort of include uh, air as well in this because one of the great bottlenecks in our economy, not just for, for nationally but sort of in rural areas, is the difficulty of having cheap air flights to uh, to rural areas. And so what I expect to sort of see here and in relatively short order, is an ability to monitor the location of vehicles, monitor congestion, and to be able to direct it in a way that reduces congestion, it reduces the amount of of accidents, and uh, just greatly improves the, the way that people can get around. Now, you mentioned the public sector. Can I talk about construction now, too? Yeah, let's let's segue into the next, into the next industry, construction. I, Go for I, it. I have to because... Because if you look at the, the government statistics on construction, what it shows is that the price of construction has risen, depending on which numbers you look at, by 80 to 100% since 2000. 
and there's been just an astounding rise. And part of the reason why infrastructure seems so expensive to localities is that the price of infrastructure has greatly outpaced not just tax revenues, but the things we think of as expensive, like healthcare. In fact, depending on what number you look at, the, the, the construction prices have risen faster, as fast as anything in the economy, and maybe faster. And so part of what has to happen in order to make the smart cities work is we actually have to be able to change the price structure of construction. That means moving towards more automation, and it means moving towards new materials. One of the things that perplexes me is that there's been a great rise in the price of asphalt since 2000, which is partly why some of these uh, small cities have been letting roads go back to gravel. What we need to see is we need to see either an improvement in the productivity of asphalt, uh, asphalt manufacturing, or we need to see new materials that are cheaper and work as well. So I think what we're going to see when we think about when we think about moving to smart cities is uh, we're also going to see a revolution on the construction side as well. Okay. Next, let's go to uh, healthcare. Ah, uh, healthcare is a is a wonderful. We we know that the price of healthcare has gone up enormously. We also know that in investment in information technology has not kept pace. It's been very difficult to convince uh, hospitals and doctor's offices to adopt electronic uh, health records. It's been very difficult to sort of make them inter- interactive. We're slowly getting there. If we hope to uh, increase productivity in healthcare, we're going to need to make more investments in information technology, use mobile apps to monitor our health, uh, use telemedicine to be able to get uh, healthcare to rural areas, uh, be able to sort of use Things that we can do right now, which is, uh, for example, online eye refractions to make eye care available to more people. I can just keep going down down the list. But the fact is, is that this is being stalled in part by institutional factors and in part because of um, a natural caution on the part of the FDA. I wrote a, a report a few years ago about uh, a device that used uh, information technology and, and sensing technology to sort of look at lesions on people's skin and decide whether they were melanoma or not. Non-invasive, not a problem. And the FDA was blocking it. And what I said in my piece was that if the FDA had been in charge of uh, cell phones in the 1980s, they would have insisted that they have as good quality as the existing wireline phones. And what we would have ended up at that point with these big, expensive boxes that nobody could have bought. And it's no surprise that what we've got right now is expensive medicine because the FDA has a really hard time approving anything that is not actually better than what's out there. And the problem is we know that disruptive technologies enter the market as somewhat lower quality but much lower price, and then they sort of move up you know, the, the quality curve. So at this point now, partly the, the issues has to do with the FDA having a tough time with disruptive innovation. Okay, next, manufacturing X computers and electronics. In other words, manufacturing not including the production of computers and electronics. Okay, pretty much every manufacturing industry over the last 20 years has had flat TFP growth. Now, if I had talked to you, asked you in 1994, well, I'm going to tell you that your manufacturing industries are going to have zero TFP growth over the next 20 years, and you have to compete 
with low-cost rivals overseas, what do you think is going to happen? Well, we're going to lose jobs. And partly what happened is that the information technology was not up to, at that point, dealing with all the information, all the data, real-time processing necessary to sort of handle a physical process. And I think what we're going to see with the rise of 3D printing, with the rise of low-cost sensors uh, and big data and the ability to sort of handle large amounts of data, we're going to start to see transformation of manufacturing processes, a shift to custom manufacturing, shift to a different sort of model that's going to have the effect of increasing productivity and, in fact, generating more jobs. Okay. And the next one is education and training. Wow. That's a great one. So education, as you know, has gone up in price. Nobody quite understands why it has gone up in price, but it has, without the quality necessarily going up. At the same time, we have an increased need not just to sort of educate young people, but to educate and retrain people in their middle years, not just for cognitive jobs, but for mixed physical cognitive jobs. And what we're going to be able to do with the Internet of Things is we're going to be able to sort of design simulators that actually train people on the newest equipment very fast, lower the cost of training. It will be an enormous breakthrough. In fact, if I had to say the single most important thing that we could do in this economy is lower the cost of training through the use of information technology. Because right now, with a high cost of training, companies don't want to do it. Universities and colleges, community colleges, they have a hard time doing the cutting-edge stuff. And it's just too expensive for people to buy for themselves. And so we have a lot of people who see the world change that want to change along with it that have no way to get to training. This is absolutely essential, and will turn out this, this unlocks a gold mine. Okay. I was a bit surprised uh, to see you include uh, restaurants here, although by your definition of physical industries, uh, it would certainly count. How do you think that they'll be transformed? So, you know, I think it's going to be uh, in connection with the transportation industry and the transformation of the retail industry. What we want to see is we want to see more use of information technology, uh, the ability to give people higher value services. It may very well be that the restaurants focus on ones that give people a good experience. Other parts of the food delivery system goes to delivery straight to the home. It's a little bit difficult to see exactly how this is going to work out, but I think that this is going to transform as well. Let me end the uh, speed round there, but I want to talk about a few technologies that didn't come up uh, during that part of the chat and just uh, get a quick sense from you of what you think their impact also could be on physical industries. Uh, First of all, uh, cloud computing. Absolutely. What cloud computing does is it makes uh, high-powered IT accessible to every company, and not only that, they don't have to worry about upgrading because the upgrading gets done through the cloud. So really, it's about using economies of scale to make sure that if you if you as a company invest in IT, that your purchase will not get outmoded right away or in a couple of years, that in fact that you will be able to sort of keep going along with the cutting edge. This is what actually makes part of this investment possible because companies that are not IT companies, that are not IT specialists like the manufacturers and the transportation and the healthcare know that if they hook into the cloud that they are going to be kept up with the cutting edge. Okay, great. Uh, There's two more of these technologies I want to get your quick take on. Uh, Software as a service. I, I, I put that into the same category as cloud computing. It's a way that 
companies in manufacturing and transportation and healthcare in retailing can make an investment in, in information technology and they know that they will be able to keep up with the leading edge. And so it changes the economics for them. It, and it's a one-time investment and they don't have to keep going back to the well. And then finally, uh, artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah, is that something we should be afraid here come, of or what? Here come the robots. Okay. Look, I mean, when I look at the, the robot question, which I consider to be part and parcel with the artificial intelligence question, I say, where is it? I don't see the robots and I don't see the artificial intelligence yet. Once I see it, I'm happy to think about what the effect is going to be. So far, what I've seen is that the industries that increase their productivity and lower their costs and lower their prices end up hiring more people. And this is the way that we want it to happen. Is it possible that artificial intelligence will do something different? I guess it is, but you tell me what your best example is of artificial intelligence right now. The first two technologies you gave me, uh, the cloud computing and software as a service, are here. You tell me what your example of artificial intelligence is. Uh, hopefully uh, that's a rhetorical question because I can't give you an answer. But uh, when you ask people that, what would they usually say? What I've seen over the last 20 years when it comes to technology, I've seen a lot of things being promised that did not happen in a lot of different areas because they turned out to be harder than people expected. Once I see an example of artificial intelligence in use, I'll be very happy to think about what that means Suppose that we had an artificial intelligence helping run the economy. Would it be better or worse than our, than our, than our current economic policymakers? Don't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I lied. I've actually got one more because uh, this one also struck me as really interesting. Machine-to-machine mobile communications. Yeah, that's, I, I would sort of put this into the same, same class too. What's, what, what we see when we think about changing applications of information technology to physical industries, what we want is different objects communicating with each other. And we don't want it to have to go through the through us. We want them to communicate with each other and make reasonable rule of thumb decisions. So we want our cars to communicate with each other. We want our cars to communicate. We want our cars to communicate with the road. Uh, we want our sensors that are attached to us to monitor our health, to communicate to some central location, and, and on and on and on. And we're going to end up with a much more coordinated economy, which will lower prices and increase growth and potentially incre- you know, create new opportunities for work. And, and that's really what we're about here. We're about helping people move up the chain because one of the big problems of the last 20 years has been not just low productivity growth, but low wage growth. And the question is, how do we get out of that trap? Because that's what's really horrible right now. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about some of the potential logistical and regulatory obstacles to the trends that we've just discussed. Because I I have a confession to make. I am myself certainly not with the pessimists uh, on productivity growth. I think it's extremely plausible, uh, if not likely, that there are all these kind of underlying pools of innovation that will be commercializable, that will be uh, adapted eventually uh, in a way that's societally widespread and beneficial. 
that that could be coming, right? But I also can't quite get myself to, I think, the happier place that you're in uh, and that's in this report, in part because of a lot of these uh, logistical issues. So take the issue of construction, which we discussed earlier. I've looked into this a bit, and construction um, has had like an outrageous productivity stagnation, even relative to um, the overall stagnation. I mean, I think it didn't climb at all. Productivity growth in the construction sector for the better part of like a half century. It's amazing. And one of the issues there is not just about materials. It's also about you know, zoning regulations. It's about having to build on inferior land in part because of those regulations. It's about all kinds of other things uh, that have to do as much with policy uh, as with technological advancement. And it seems to me like getting the policy right is actually a big part of this because if you don't, then a lot of the promise of the technologies that you describe and of the ability to adapt them uh, more widely uh, will just be lost. I have to say that I don't agree with you. And let me tell you why. Have have you had your house renovated recently? Uh, No. Okay. So what happens is it's a very time-consuming process where it's a lot of hand labor to assemble things and fit them into place and so forth. Now, this made sense because we didn't have the technology to actually identify in exact detail where everything should go. But in theory, you should be able to assemble a lot of what goes into renovation much more efficiently using precision tools, using um, automation in a way that greatly shortens the length of the construction uh, and greatly reduces the costs. Now, are there obstacles that sort of stop this? Yes, there is, because there's uh, local zoning regulations that may make this difficult. But I think what we've seen, certainly in the case of ride-sharing and uh, home-sharing, that regulations can change if faced with a better option. And if we can show localities here, this is a much more expensive, much less expensive way of doing infrastructure, of building homes, of building buildings, of improving the life of the people in your city. Uh, I think there's going to be openness to that. So far, nobody has done that. I look now at Elon Musk, and one of the projects he's working on is a tunneling machine, of all things. And he calls it the Boring Company, which I'm sure is a, is a pun of some sort. But he's been working on doing better tunneling. That's not a small thing, okay, in terms of the construction cost of projects like highways and tunnels and subways and so forth. We just haven't paid enough attention to a lot of these physical industries in terms of innovation. Then there's going to be, I would say, in in something like construction, there would be innovation also in materials, and that requires some time to work through to sort of make sure they, they are acceptable to pass the zoning requirements. But once again, if you have a disruptive technology that you can show is both cheaper and better than what's out there, it becomes much easier to convince people. Uh, Yeah, I certainly hope you're right. The example that you just brought up, though, uh, is another one where I'm a little bit worried about the speed at which um, the technology will be allowed to be introduced societally. So you take like the issue of driverless cars. It's not just getting the technology right, and it's not even just setting up the traffic management system 
Uh, it's also, for instance, dealing with like liability issues. It's uh, how do you write insurance contracts on it? Yeah, I mean, oh, this oh, all I seems like a ton of work, and I, I worry about how quickly uh, it can Oh, happen. I agree with you 100% on autonomous vehicles. I think it's going to be a much slower process than people think. You know, you've got people saying that this is going to happen in five years. But remember, this report went out 15 years. And so I think what you're going to see is that's going to be the time scale for uh, autonomous vehicles becoming an important part of what's going on. Because we're going to have to redesign vehicles from scratch. I mean, for me, that's one of the most important things. We can't just have software laid on top of existing hardware. The, in order to make the cost low enough, you're going to have to integrate the two. That's going to take time. We may see the, uh, the arrival of new companies to do this. Because if this is really as big a thing as people think it is, it's an opening for entrepreneurs. Uh, so, yeah, I think this – I don't think that a lot of the things that people are scared about is going to happen next year or the next five years. I think this is a 15-year process. So I'm kind of with you. Some of these things – some of these things are just going to, are just going to take time. Yeah. Let me let me take uh, one one final example here with respect to uh, the healthcare sector. Uh, do you worry that because the government plays such a big role in the healthcare sector in pretty much every advanced economy in the world? I mean, the, the systems are set up differently, but it does play a big role. Um, do you worry there that the incentives just aren't aligned uh, to introduce all of these new technologies quickly? So you're asking me this at an interesting time, of course, in the institutional history of the U.S. healthcare system. I can't even predict what's going to happen next week there. But, you know, what I think is that especially as costs rise and costs are rising everywhere, not just in the U.S., the pressure on governments and providers of all sorts to change what they're doing will just increase and increase and increase. You know, governments are inherently uh, reluctant to change what they do, but as the cost of health care keeps rising and rising, especially as people age, uh, they're going to be forced to look at new alternatives for improving productivity and improving care. In the U.S., one of the big motivations for um, changing the nature of care will actually be the need to push out health care to the rural areas. And I had sort of mentioned earlier that you can do eye refractions online. If you can do eye refractions online, you can push that out. You can, If you have a machine that can do scans for melanoma, you can push that out to areas that have, uh, are not near urban areas. And what's going to happen is that the incentive of money will actually induce people to sort of look at new technologies. Let me uh, shift gears a little bit here. There's been some interesting research in the last couple of years about the concentration, uh, not just of profits, but of essentially captured productivity growth at the leading firms in each industry. And this obviously can lead to uh, things like uh, between firm inequality. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the research, it means that if you're, say, a mid-level manager or even if you're uh, a secretary at one firm and you had the exact same skill set but you happen to work for a kind of middling second-tier firm in the sector versus the best, uh, you'll make a lot less money, even though, again, your skill set is exactly the same. But one of the explanatory causes for it seems to be the lack of diffusion in technology from 
the leading firms in each industry uh, to the rest of the firms in that industry. Uh, what do you think about that, and what would be the connection um, between uh, that finding uh, and your research? So I've done a lot of work looking historically at the first half of the 20th century. Companies like GE and GM and Ford were much more productive than their rivals. And what happened was, is because they were more productive, they could offer lower prices, they can offer their workers more money, and then they expanded, and they became a larger and larger share of the economy. And part of what happened was that they absorbed the low productivity producers, which is what you would expect in a competitive economy, that the high productivity firms would expand and get a higher and higher share of the economy. Now, the research that you refer to, which is which was done by the OECD, actually says that one of the things that we need to do is allow the high productivity firms to expand. The issue is actually not monopoly, which is, but if you've got a firm that's high productivity and pays more and charges lower prices to consumers, you want it to expand because that's how you spread the technology. Now, it has always been true that diffusion was, has been a slow process. You sort of go and look at the diffusion of tractors into uh, into into farms and replacing uh, replacing horses, and it was a twenty or thirty year time frame. And in the same thing here, that what we're seeing is that we're we're seeing a diffusion of technology uh, from the high end companies to other industries, and it's a process. It is taking longer than we expected, but perhaps our expectations were too high. To my mind, we're, we're actually moving on roughly the historical time frame. You mentioned before that there have been technologies in the past that sort of took a long time after their creation to sort of find the right use. And the classic one there is the, is the laser, which was invented, you know, then it didn't find a use for many years later and, until we sort of had fiber optics. Uh, and so where we are at this point is, to me, kind of where we should be. We have some firms that have been consistently high performers. They have been expanding, which is in historical context what they should be. They offer lower prices than anybody else. They have been growing in terms of employment. And I, I guess I just don't see a problem at this point. It is true that they are potential threats to low productivity companies, low productivity and low pay companies in the rest of the economy. But you know what? That's a really good thing. I can't imagine anything better than that. Think about what you just said, right? You've got these companies that pay more, that charge less, and that are expanding. That's good. And they're taking market share from companies that are less productive and pay less. What could be wrong with that? Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't even even talking so much about the market share as about the widening uh difference between I guess the first and second place companies uh and what might be causing that. I don't actually see a widening between the first and second place companies. What I see is a widening between the digital and the physical parts of the economy. That's where I see the that's where I see the big widening by a by a large amount. So, you know, if you pick, you know, a leading edge digital company, and a leading-edge physical company, you'd actually see the digital company growing much faster than the physical company. And we can go through individual cases, but you'd actually have a hard time identifying who the leading-edge physical companies are. 
Okay. Well, we've got time for just a couple more questions. Here's another worry that I see uh, mentioned quite a bit. Uh, I suspect I know what your response to it is going to be, but uh, I'd be interested to get your, your thinking on it anyways. Uh, so here, here, here's, here's how it goes. The worry is not that a lot of automation and new technologies are necessarily going to lead to like massive, wide-scale unemployment, but that instead it'll lead to a period of long-term wage stagnation of the kind that we saw, for instance, during the Industrial Revolution, the first few decades of the 19th century. And the argument goes something like this. The jobs will be there, but because the fast productivity sectors will end up sort of producing a kind of glut of excess labor, in other words, those sectors that have fast productivity growth will do such a good job, essentially, that they just won't need that many people. Yes, they'll save a lot of money for consumers, and those consumers will have to spend the money elsewhere, but that the other sectors of the economy are not fast productivity sectors, and so they just won't pay as much. So they'll absorb those workers, but everybody or a big chunk of society will essentially have a long-term period of very slow wage growth. Um, and so the only people who really benefit are the people who own the capital in the fast productivity sectors. What do you think about that? So far, the digital sector has been actually creating jobs and work faster than the physical sector, and if you, and actually has been creating at higher wages. And if we look at the case that is right at people's mind right now, which is e-commerce, I've done a lot of calculations looking at e-commerce jobs versus brick-and-mortar retail jobs. And since 2007, e-commerce has created almost 400,000 jobs in uh, e-commerce centers and fulfillment centers, brick and mortar has lost about uh, about 80,000 full-time equivalent uh, jobs since 2007. And as far as I can figure out, the weekly wages at, in e-commerce are 30 to 40% higher than in retail, which is, pays really horrible wages. So actually, what I actually think is happening right now is we're, we're actually back in a historical sense to, and I'm going to give you another problem, we're actually back in a historical sense to the first half of the 20th century where manufacturing grew, became more productive, and added more workers because prices were falling. Now, the difficulty here, if I look back in the first half of the 20th century, was that agriculture actually lagged way behind. It had weak productivity growth, weak earnings growth, and, and weak job growth. And so the people that are being left behind in this wonderful world we have to mount a robust effort to stabilize their situation. This is something that we have not yet done. And I think the main, our, our main failing right here as we move forward, the main place where we could fall down is not on the productivity and growth side, which I actually think is going to generate a lot of good-paying jobs. But for the people that are left behind and whose lives are disrupted, we actually have to mount a serious effort to help them. Okay. Final question. You closed your paper with some concrete policy suggestions. Why don't you give us uh, two or three that you think would really make the biggest difference? Well, the one, the one thing that I think would make the biggest difference actually is, uh, is what we call regulatory improvement, which is going through the regulatory system and making sure that we don't have overlap, that we are sort of scraping the barnacles off the bottom of the boat, getting rid of regulations that actually don't do anything that stand in the way and making the regulatory system more efficient. Not regulatory elimination, but regulatory improvement. And I think in a lot of areas that will make a difference because, I, I, you know, I hate to say this, we've had regulatory accumulation that has actually weighed down uh, on, on the economy. And it's not a surprise that in, in some of the areas 
that we've had growth have been uh, less prone to uh, regulation than the uh, than the physical industries. So I would say that that's important. You know, I would also say I would also suggest that paying a, a lot of attention to improving our education and training system is extremely important as well. And then finally, I mentioned this already, stabilization policies for the areas and the people that are left behind is essential for maintaining social cohesion. Well, the paper is The Coming Productivity Boom. Our guest has been Michael Mandel. Michael, thanks so much, man. This was so provocative. Uh, thank you very much for, uh, for having me and uh, glad to be here. And that is the end of my chat with Michael. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code because we are based in the U.S. Rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It really, really does help people find out about us and we see every single review. Show notes for this and all prior episodes are at ft.com forward slash alphachat. Special thanks for this episode to Kevin Tidmarsh for recording Michael's end of the line for us. And finally, AlphaChat's productivity growth went through the roof when we invested in the information technology that is the brain space of producer and editor Amy Keene. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of AlphaChat. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.